this is Can I Interject, episode 25, recorded on the 16th of March, 2022. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Can I Interject? Uh, I'm Gregor and this week I'll be speaking about our current affairs topic and this week that will be wildlife in scotland and i'm daniel and i will be looking at something in popular culture and this time around i've chosen hp lovecraft and i'm neil and i will be getting everybody to discuss their top five favorite idols so as as ever we will start off with our highlights and lowlights and i'm going to start this time because my highlight has been the games night that we had the other night. We had at the weekend uh, a virtual games night. It was really good. We managed two games, one of which we played for the very first time with absolutely no practice or very much background information to go with it, uh, which was quite entertaining. And it did drag on because we weren't quite sure what we were doing. But it was really good to to be back and playing games again and having a laugh and having a good time i've been struggling to think of a low light i think a low light was the fact that i was gullible enough to fall for a facebook scam to which neil will probably consider a highlight of his because he felt quite smug about it after the revelation but i just i felt pretty daft about that but no everything's just been sort of plodding away uh what about you neil i'll start with the highlight uh i've actually been eating out a bit recently you know just like a little treats for the weekend and just been enjoying that. I've been for a couple of Indians and uh, just a couple of meals in the local restaurants, which is not not really something we usually do. We usually like to cook in the house, but we've been enjoying our time at the restaurants recently, maybe once a week. Nice. And low light is the half marathon is almost over. Well, that's a highlight, but the running that must be must be some time. <laughs> it's a very slow half marathon. <laughs> Yes, it's on Sunday. I've uh, this, today was the last long run before, and then Sunday's the big one. I will review my time when we come back next time. And we're coming down to watch you. Are you really? So, woo! You hand me my caffeine cocktail at the side of the road. I'll hand, I'll hand you whatever you need. <laughs> and uh, what about you, Gregor? Well, I suppose that carrying on from last time, the low light is. Well, we talked about it in the lunch at my chemotherapy last time. Oh, yes. And I thought I'd be trying my tuna sandwich. It was at half one, so I missed lunch. I only got coffee and cake in the afternoon, so I was a bit gutted about that. What was the cake? Uh, it, was, it was a biscuit, rather. Oh. An oat biscuit. I did have the choice of a cookie, but I went for the oat biscuit. See, this is what, you ta- this is what your national insurance pick gets you these days. No, no. But I'm in at 10 tomorrow, so that'll straddle lunchtime. So I'll get my, I'll give an update next time. Well, that's good. Fingers crossed then for the tuna sandwich. Well, exactly. That's probably my low light. Highlight. Yeah, the game's night was good. I got a new camera as well. We can tell it's very dark. So I find... No, <laughs> not my not, not webcam. Well, it is remarkably light in this room. But yeah, I got a new camera. Just a sort of introductory DSLR. We've had a child, I think I mentioned, so we thought we'd uh, get a decent camera to capture uh, salient moments in his life. And also, um, 
for holidays and other things. But I'm I'm been taken in by it actually. I've quite enjoyed the whole setup and taking pictures. It makes a satisfying noise, like a shutter noise when you <laughs> press the button. Which is good. Nice, nice. But we're all meeting up next week, so I'll bring it along to that that event. Mm-hmm. Sure, with plenty of pictures. But it's it's really it's really fun to use. I just want to hear the shutter noise. Yeah, I mean it's got a, it's got a pop up flash as well. <gasps> wow. Yeah. She's going to look forward to that. So I've been practicing, well, I've been practicing pressing the button and pointing at things. <laughs> the camera. Um, so yeah, that's that's probably the highlight. That's pretty cool. So we'll move we'll move on as we do into our topics. Three topics once again for you. And uh, as Greg has said in th- into the introduction, he's bringing us the current affairs feature. Now this was prompted by a story that I read on the BBC news website. I was thinking, what can I do for current affairs this week? And I typed in to the my, like the news sections weird because I'm sure weird used to be like weird and strange things used to be a mm-hmm. a sub thing on BBC news, but it, it didn't come up with anything, which was disappointed at. So the next thing I typed in was animals, and lo and behold, what came up but a story about the endangered nature of the the world famous capercaillie scottish capercaillie and so that that um and and i've been vaguely aware of other reintroduction wildlife reintroduction schemes not that capercaillies are well we'll get onto that but not that this is more about the capercaillie is more about declining numbers but i was aware there was also some wildlife reintroduction schemes that had gone on in recent recent times in scotland um so i thought it'd be a good Good to discuss it because uh, it's always it comes up in the news every now and again. So, so it's individual animals. So one's a capercaillie, one's seagulls, and one's the lynx. Um, so we'll do seagulls first, then we'll do the lynx, then we'll do capercaillie. So I'll, I'll do seagulls. I'll give a bit of blurb. We'll discuss it, and then we'll do lynx. Blurb, blurb, discuss it, and so on. So seagulls. I've actually researched this and I found it fascinating, um, <laughs> which we'll come on to. There's common themes throughout. So seagulls were common in Scotland throughout the 1800s. Now, I've got conflicting information on this, but either 1917 or 1918 is when they went extinct. One website said the last eagle was shot in 1918, but another, I mean, both were reputable websites. The other said they went extinct in 1917. So at the start of the 20th century, they went extinct. They were reintroduced on the Isle of Rum in 1975, with further reintroductions in Wester Ross in 1993 to 1998, and then... 85 more were reintroduced, 15 a year were reintroduced, around 15 a year were reintroduced to the east coast of Scotland over 2007 to 2012 in the T and fourth regions or areas, not regions. They are currently an endangered species with less than 10,000 remaining in the world and most of them in Norway and that's where the most recent reintroduction programmes we got or Scotland got theirs from. They, they took chicks from nests in Norway where there were twins. So they left one eagle in the nest and they brought the other eagle over raised them and put them into the wild over here. I'm not, I'm not familiar with the details as you may be, but I, I do know that, that at least the part we taken from Norway is correct. You know the salient points. Yes. Funded by the Scottish government, so this is one of I mean, one of their many policies, but they have been looking at reintroducing wildlife into Scotland. So this seagulls was one. They're in the process of doing beavers as well. So it's got a, a, 
two key positives, I suppose, the conservationism of the species. It's endangered species, so they're they're keeping the numbers up globally and over a larger geographic area than what they were previously, given the best chance at being here in the future. Tourism revenue estimated to bring in five million years per year to the Isle of Mull. That's from the Scottish government website. Negatives, they well another positive as well. This wasn't called it in as a point in anything I read, but this is a, a a typical positive of reintroduction of species is that it rebalances some of the ecosystem imbalances um, that has been caused by its sort of uh, extinction in the first place. It was seen as a pest. Eagles. Well, that we'll get onto that. Cricket. Sea eagles, <laughs> not seagulls. Oh, not not seagulls. Not the St Andrews ones. How, why would seagulls need to be reintroduced? No, that's what I was thinking. Because they were there. They were there yeah, twenty years sorry. ago. For the for the avoidance of doubt, listener, and I appreciate my speech isn't the clearest at times, but I'm talking about sea eagles, right. the also known as white-tailed eagles of the genus. Yeah, <laughs> they're 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 a very large bird of prey, I believe. And we'll pick this off with the fact check, but I think they're the largest bird in Scotland currently. They're the largest bird of prey in the British Isles. But large, large bird of prey, sorry, yeah. And I I thought I saw this is this is an aside. <laughs> it won't be long. But I was out fishing. I thought we saw one. Um, we were we were fishing. We're out in the boat for about six hours, and this is about hour five, maybe going into hour six. And we looked up and we saw a large bird of prey circling. And we just moved the boat, and it was circling where we just moved the boat from. Mm-hmm. Down it swoops, picks up a trout in its talons, <laughs> and swip- and flies away across the loch. I was like, "That looks like an eagle." Uh, I ended up, it, it, it looks, it was a, it, it turns out it was very likely it was an osprey rather than an eagle, um, a sea eagle. Mm-hmm. But it was the first time I'd ever seen such a large bird of prey in action. So an osprey is still very rare. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know the numbers, but um, for comparison, there's around 200 seagulls currently in Scotland. (laughs) Listeners, you always notice that when Gregor isn't sure about something, he goes up a couple of octaves. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's what you do do when you question, isn't it? When you ask a question. I'm asking a question of myself. Self doubt. Yeah, so for comparison, there's like about 221 pairs, breeding pairs, by about 2025. So I'm not quite sure how many ospreys are, but sea eagles are indeed still quite rare, despite their successful mm-hmm. reintroduction. But onto the negative, uh, the, well, the main negative is that they have been known to attack livestock, primarily uh, lambs, so they're not popular amongst the uh, sheep farming or crofting communities here in Scotland. Uh, there have been <laughs> There have been attempts to well, recompense the the farmers and crofters, but also to help them prepare for uh, sea sea eagle attacks um, by putting various sort of measures into uh, to deter the birds from eating their livestock. So yeah, um, that that would that that typically happens. Although, like like I was saying, with it restores some of the imbalances that were brought about by its extinction in the first place. It can also lead to ecosystem imbalances in itself if there's not enough. Natural prey. It can look for prey that is uh, has been has been bred in the local area for uh, by farmers and by crofters. So not sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Wild prey, domestic uh, livestock. Or livestock's the word. Yeah. I suppose that's it. I don't know if either of you have heard of this. Uh, this has been on your radar. Yep. 
but we'll go to we'll discuss the sort of how, what how you, what your thoughts are on reintroduction and also seagulls in particular. Um, I suppose so. Uh, Dan, you said you've heard about this. You want to kick us off with your thoughts with regards to reintroduction? I'm a big fan. You know, I I believe in, in the requirement to rebalance. I re- I also believe that you know, contrary to some people's opinions, you know, we don't have a right to ex- exterminate populations of animals just because they're a pain or they're considered a pest um, or for any other reason, to be honest. Uh, so I'm a big fan of it. Sea eagles, as somebody who comes from the Isle of Skye, you know, sea eagles were something that we're very aware of. Um, in Portree, they've got the Ados sen- Centre, which had a, a webcam which was inside a sea eagle nest and you could go and see it. I mean, that was when I was younger. I don't know if they still have it now. So we were very aware of the fact that sea eagles existed. You know, I've seen sea eagles as well, and they are. They're beautiful creatures. Obviously, sky being a farming, crofting kind of world, <laughs> there's there's obviously people who are a bit detracting about it. But, you know, as you've said, it's, it's part of the process is that, you know, those those sheep generally, you could argue, weren't there originally. and they were introduced um and i mean the sheep aren't a pest they're a they're a way of life but and they can't and they can become targets but it's all about that balance and you know if you want the sea eagles to be successful then you need to make sure they have sufficient uh prey in the sea if we are overfishing or not maintaining our, our our coastal waters properly, then that obviously becomes a problem for the sea eagles, which will then encourage them to move inland and attack things like lambs. I mean, lamb attacks not unusual. Seagulls will attack lambs. Crows will attack lambs. Yeah. Buzzards will attack. You know, you know, crows are extremely clever. They're, they're subtle about it. And they're, they're they're worse than just going down there and killing them. Um, that's by the by. I, I, like I said, they're beautiful animals, stunning to watch, much like ospreys. You know, they're very, very agile, they're very elegant creatures, and I think it's a great benefit. It's a benefit just to the country. It doesn't matter about tourism or financial gain. It's a benefit that we have them here. Yeah, uh, good points. I'll, I'll, I'll share my own thoughts as well. Um, after, after Neil, you want to jump in? Uh, I don't actually know much about the sea eagles. I've not really seen much. Sea seagulls yeah. more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, I'm a fan of reintroduction uh, of birds. Yes, other animals not so much. Oh, <laughs> could get could get tasty. <laughs> Excellent, excellent news. <laughs> yeah, I've not really got much to say on it. I'm I'm all for it. It's I've never I've never have seen you, one. Have you ever seen a? Seagull? Well, this is going to be my question. Which part of Scotland slash UK will they be found? Obviously, Sky. So with Scotland, so they're introduced to Isle of Rum, um, in the seventies. So you'll find them on the sort of west coast islands. They're they're introduced to Western Ross in the nineties. So you'll find so that was further reintroduction in the west coast, and then recently been, there's been eighty five being placed into uh, the Tay in the fourth areas, in the sort of well two thousand seven two thousand twelve. So they'll start to hopefully start to flourish over the next few decades. Uh, but mainly the West Coast just now. So we might see some in St Andrews soon. You may do, yeah. Yeah, that's the uh, Tay area. Yeah. yeah, with all their brothers and sisters of seagulls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cousins. Might not be much seagulls left. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is hoping. 
<laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm all, I'm all for the introduction of sea eagles. Yeah. <laughs> and the culling of seagulls. <laughs> I think Dan raises a good point there, actually, um, that when the extinction of an animal was through our own doing, through habitat loss or hunting or uh, general disturbance of their of their habitat, it makes sense to have it reintroduced when it does cause, especially when it does cause these ecological imbalances. But I do sympathise with particularly well, the farmers and the crofters because the farmers have set up this, they not have set up the business, but they've, they're part of this business that, and, um, no, I won't say any, I won't say any more on that front. Um, I mean, they'll have been consolidated, don't imagine, or they certainly will be with future reintroductions. They, they've had, uh, they're having uh, their sheep attacked. Um, through no fault of their own, and that's obviously impacting them. And the crofters as well aren't necessarily doing it for, uh, what's the word, commercial reasons either. So, but yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. I mean, I, I struggle to find any that. Well, we'll get on to non-bird reintroductions and Neil's opinion on that. But I think you struggle to find any that's not outside of. I mean, it's obviously affecting directly affecting, um, farmers and crofters. But apart from yeah. that, I'd, I'd I think most people will be in favour of it. But speaking of which, we'll go on to our next next one. It's the Lynx. Uh, the Lynx is a big cat. No, no, not as big as some of the other big cats. It's sort of a, a large wild cat. It went extinct about 500 to 1,000 years ago in Britain. That, again, was due to human interaction. Uh, we hunted them. They, we took over. We destroyed their habitat. They've, they've been reintroduced elsewhere in Europe, most notably in Germany, in the forests of Germany. Or a single forest of Germany. Hans Forest, he says, as his voice goes up <laughs> an octave. <laughs> it's octave time. Harz Mountains, Bavarian for- Bohemian Forest and Bavarian Forest. Anyway, that's by the by. But, so, the lynx is, is not, uh, like I said, beavers and sea eagles are currently on the government's agenda for reintroduction. Lynx isn't. Uh, isn't currently being considered. Um, there is a a movement to have the links reintroduced. Um, currently, that is at the I'd say feasibility study stage. Links is just a baby tiger. <laughs> I don't know and a tapir is just a baby elephant. So this is this has been done by a sort of independent group. Links to Scotland, they're called. You can check them out. But they've done a. They're just looking at sort of what the public opinion is on reintroducing lynxes to Scotland. Now this is different. Uh, you know, as you'll note, this isn't a bird. So I'm good to get your thoughts on this. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, they they argue that the lynx is a solitary animal. It's not known to attack humans, which seems to be correct. It may it may attack livestock. However. The argument is there's an abundance of natural prey for the lynx in the form of, well, roe deer, mainly. Um, however, the counter to that is that farmers have done their own sort of independent research and noted that in Norway, the sheep farmers there estimate to lose about 20,000, or t- in 2017 lost about 20,000 livestock, and a fifth of that we're down to lynx, so it does seem that in other areas where lynx are do do dwell, uh, do attack livestock, but they could be introduced in such a way that that is minimised, uh, but 
obviously once you're into the population, as time goes on, they you lose control of of sort of where they where they are geographically. As I say, roe deer. Um, in Scotland, we currently cull well over a hundred thousand deer every year. Um, closer to two hundred estimate estimated closer to two hundred thousand deer, and so we're talking about the sort of imbalances brought on by the lack of uh, the imbalances by of us mm-hmm. sort of destroying these uh, these animals in the first place can lead to can lead to those ecological imbalances, and so it would restore that to. I mean, <laughs> not not wholly, but it would it would restore that to some extent. Is that right? We cull two hundred deer a year. Two hundred, we close to two hundred thousand deer a year estimated. The numbers are just the numbers are over a hundred thousand, but I reckon there's underreporting. We cull over a hundred thousand. We cull well over a hundred thousand deer per Where's year. Where's all that meat going? Rotting in the forests. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Oh let's, my god! Yeah, let's be honest. Yeah, uh, they, they're they're massively damaging to forests. Uh, deer they don't yeah. allow they the fact that the deer are there don't allow the proper regeneration of forests, and so that's why they need to need to cull them because they're um, massively overpopulated mm-hmm. due to the lack of natural predators <laughs> that we've yeah. that we destroyed in the past. Yeah. So. So we'll kick it with your thoughts, Neil. So you you've you've previously went on the record and stated that you're not a fan of non non bird non avian wildlife reintroductions. Can I talk? A, this might fall into the lynx category, but can I talk about my beef? Yes. Similar to the lynx. I can't wait to hear what this animal for a is. couple of, for a couple of decades. I heard about it years and years ago, and and they voted on it last May, I believe. It was the the wolves reintroducing wolves into the population which the, the link's fine because it's not dangerous to humans unless provoked but wolves on the other hand are a different kettle of fish and have been known to attack people and kill people in places like Alaska and Are they the same wolves though? I've not seen a specific breeds but the lynx, I've, I've, I've looked it up and it's non-aggressive to humans and could a yeah. lynx kill a roe deer? Probably they're quite slim. A baby one anyway yeah, I mean, like a, a squirrel could probably take out a roe deer. Yeah, <laughs> malicious. <laughs> well, yeah. So there is there is that where you've got the overpopulation of animal, obviously culling them, and they're non-threatening. But sort of a, say, a balancing act is if there's too much food for these lynx, and they have got a predator, and it's kind of just fair game, then they will to balance that out. They will populate immensely. Because they've got such easy access to food, yeah, and that's the that's the danger. I mean, there's other there's other factors because they themselves will may, may face sort of predation when they're younger, and so yeah. and so birth rates might be lower or whatever. But the, the, there's the abundance of food certainly helps. I mean, just because there's a lot of food, taking down a deer is probably still a task for lynx. So it's not like it's not as if there's just steaks lying about the forest floor kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's quite small, so it's probably a bit of a challenge. Yeah, and from what I've heard from very little research I've done, is there's quite solitary, so I don't think there's pack animals in the sense that wolves are. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've read or seen, seen in my past uh, Little Red Riding Hood, I know what happens with wolves. The wolves eat the porridge, Dan. It was the best! It was the best! What... What did the wolf do? The, the wolf at Granny. Oh, God. oh, that's worse. 
<laughs> and then the huntsman cut his belly open, <laughs> and the granny fell I out. I didn't see that version. But the lynx is an extensively specialised roe deer hunter. Now that's from <laughs> good old, good old internet a source you can trust. <laughs> but yeah, it's, so it does seem that they are. Dan, what are your thoughts on the lynx? I'm I'm happy with the reintroduction of a lynx. Not a fan of the deer. I like venison. <laughs> I mean, I don't care about deer so much because they're like you say. There is a very large population of deer in Scotland. I think people yeah. forget that when we talk about Scotland, it's you know, the majority of the population is in a rather small area in the lower central belt, mm-hmm. and then everybody else like skirts up and around the outside within reason. So there is a large area within Scotland that a small feline animal could live in. And and like you say, they're, they're generally solitary, so they're not, but they're not going to cover that much area, and they will help deal with the deer population, and they're native. You know, I think the wolf argument's a bit more complicated, because they are pack animals, and, you know, they're used to... I say used to as if, you know, they're all experts but you know as 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 a as a species they've evolved that they can bring down animals much larger than themselves as a pack so a, a creature like a human is probably fair game um, and i'm not suggesting that that's what wolves would do but there is always the risk yeah and i'm not against the reintroduction of wolves but they just have to really justify it but that's by the by uh links yes I don't see why not. They're they're just they're, they're adorable with a big tufty ears, and you know they're just like just like they're just big big ish cats. Like they're not yeah. they're not, we're not talking about a tiger or a lion or a panther. We're talking about like a, an enlarged cat, and they will just hunt things that they are able to manage because that's exactly what cats do. They don't they don't hunt things that they can't bring down. They will only hunt the things that they can and. They'll be aware that, that people are probably not a target that they could take on. Yeah, and of course, there's, there's already wild cats in Scotland. There's the yeah. Scottish wild cats. Um, yeah, the wild cat. <laughs> yeah, the, the wild cat. <laughs> and it's a cat, and cats are inherently very cautious, and you know that they, they, they process. While if it was like a canine, they behave very differently. So no, bringing the lynx, I have no problem with that at all. Yeah, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Dare ask on the concerns around livestock. I think the concerns will always exist with animals, with predators. It's just the way it works. You know that that's the, that's the problem with introducing predators. But you get the same problem when you introduce herbivores as well, like the beaver, for example, causes yeah. its own problems. I mean, it's, it's one. Do you say one fifth of the animals in Norway were? Yeah. What's a fifth? To be honest, if they're compensated. That's the thing. As long as they're, as long as they're given the means to to have as minimal impact yeah. on them as possible, I think it's very hard to talk about it because you know we've mentioned like crofting and farming, and those are the main areas that are affected by predatory animals. Mm-hmm. In, 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 you know, in in, in Scotland. I've spent most of my life around these people, and a lot of them are lovely. You know, don't get me wrong. I know loads of lovely farmers and crofters, but I know a lot which will just take every chance they can to just take the piss, basically. Can we just explain what a crofter is to our listeners, for those that don't know, please? Uh, uh, 
a crofter is maybe what is crofting then rather than what crofter <laughs> Well, it's cro- crofting. Crofting is is it's just it's a collective term for an individual that has a piece of land which can either be used for animals or for growing uh, vegetables or grain or something like that. It, it it's a it's a generic term, generally associated with the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, and I suppose into the, sort of into the south, into the lowlands as well. Um, and it's usually individuals, as I say, and, and they care for a piece of land. Uh, this land is quite often leased to them via the Crofting Commission. They don't actually own the land, but they can benefit from that which they grew on it, as long as they, they obviously pay rent for the land as well. Yeah, and there's all sorts of intricacies. There's various acts of parliament and so on, so... Yeah, I could tell you. Yeah, crofters, crofters, and the government have real beef going back hundreds of years. Yeah, but it's essentially living off the land, um, uh, and, look, and looking after the and looking after the land. But yeah, essentially, you can, you can get into the weeds on it for the purpose of of benefiting, you know, the landowners themselves and and, and people in general. Yeah, great. Yeah, well, quick thoughts for me. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a big fan as well. I think. There's always going to be downsides to these sorts of things, and as long as you're taking everybody's views on board and making suitable and fair steps to minimise the impact on those that are going to be adversely impacted the most, I think it's fair. And I mean, with the first two and the last one as well, but the first two, these both birds are uh, both animals of prey. Uh, they're sort of yeah. more or less top of the food chain in their respective sort of apex predators and their mm-hmm. respective fields. And they're very aesthetic as well. Like you talk about sea eagles bringing in tourism money. I reckon if you had forests full of links in Scotland, you'd have you'd have this it'd have the same sort of effect because people like the Highland Wildlife Park. Um, they've got their sort of the wildcats program where they've got the sort of sanctuary set up, um, and that that's a main attraction for them. So I'd imagine it'd be something similar with. If links were ever introduced, but I mean, this is all speculative at the moment. As I say, there's no plans of the Scottish government to do this. Right, zipping to the last one, Capercaillie. This is what prompted this in the first place. So, world's largest grouse. It's I've not checked this, but I think it's native to Scotland. Yeah, it is. I don't know. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's that widespread. I, I remember seeing one at it was somewhere in Lanark. It, it was the it was like the mining museum in Lanark, and they had like. <laughs> animals and that's the only time I've ever seen a capercaillie and to be honest you hardly ever hear them mentioned for such a what's the word? Traditional Yeah such a traditional part of Scottish wildlife but this, I didn't know this either but they capercaillies became extinct in the late 18th century and they were themselves successfully and now this is why I was hesitant on their native to Scotland because I don't know where they got these reintroductory birds from but they were sex- successfully reintroduced in the mid 19th century continued to expand uh, covering the largest geographical area they believe in the early 20th century there was estimated, don't know how accurate this estimate is, to be 20,000 capercaillies in Scotland in the 1970s by the early 90s, that was down to 2,200 birds. Um, they're down less than 1,100, and that was of the re- by the re- recent, most recent count in the winters of 15 to 16, 2015 to 20, 2016. And that was a 13% drop from the, the do account every six years. 
the the capercaillie was reintroduced to Scotland from populations from Sweden. Ah, right. There you go. So the the Swedish. (laughs) (laughs) So I mean, we've got a lot, a lot to, a lot to thank the Scandinavians for in regards to our our wildlife and reintroductory plans. Uh, And also, funnily enough, you mentioned before about the lynx being in the Hartz Mountains. Yep. That is also where the Capicales are in Germany. That's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they're, I mean, they're very, very similar in terms of climate, I imagine, the Bavarian Mountains. Yeah. Because the, the altitude compensating for the latitude. What a pithy sentence that was, if I don't mind <laughs> saying so myself. <laughs> you say so yourself. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, right, so. I've read, I've skimmed the report, and I've read the that was put out. But mortality, the reason for the reduction in numbers is mortality's up in juveniles and adults mostly, and the rear rearing their ugly heads again. It's those pesky deer, <laughs> but mortality's <laughs> up due to, almost wholly to deer fences and accidents of the capercaillie and deer fences. Um, this this has been going on across the last few decades. Fences have been marked in an effort to reduce capercaillie mortality, but there's still unmarked fences out there uh, that they fall victim to. Breeding success is also down. They believe that the weather's had a very small impact because wet- wetter weather in the early parts of the year can cause uh, breeding success to go down, and also warmer Aprils can cause breeding success to go down, apparently. Um, however, it's probably mostly due to predation on young eggs, eggs due to higher pre- uh, higher numbers of predators, namely f- crows, foxes, pine martens, and increased human disturbance, visitor numbers, and there's a blank there, but I'm going to remember it. Visitor numbers and recreational use of the <laughs> their habitats. Well done. So, the, that, the article's headline is basically they'll be gone within two or three decades. And what we've just talked about, reintroduction of these apex predators, if you're reintroducing the lynx, I'm, I presume that will hit. I mean, if the road deer doesn't stand much chance against a, <laughs> against a lynx, a capper has got no, no, no shout. So. We fat birds got no choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is like a steak line on the forest floor. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they've been gone within the month, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, Neil, this is a bird. It's not a bird of prey. <laughs> well, well, no, I, well, it's no, not a seagull. Reintroduction. Of I've birds. heard you the name before, but I've, I've probably only kind of like in team and a team name or something. I've never heard of it as referred to as an animal. Fighting capercaillies. Yeah. Where are they native to in Scotland? They're mostly. They used to be completely widespread. They're mostly in the Kieran Gorms now. Right. For, forest forest birds and so these deer fences is the problem is the deer are getting out and slaughtering them no it's the problem they get caught in the deer oh, fences right. <laughs> <laughs> the <fences>. <laughs> <laughs> or, they may fly into them oh, right, okay. for instance they're not high flyers <laughs> no <laughs> we've got plenty of grouse in Scotland but yeah why why not add more <laughs> <laughs> well the, the, the question on this isn't whether we should reintroduce them uh, it's just sort of noting that they are endangered the numbers have fallen and they could be extinct within the next couple of decades and at the same time we're reintroducing these predators and it's I suppose it's just I'm noting the the interesting point that the sort of difficulties in the reintroduction program and the the balance yeah the balances the sort of the balance you need to make I I, I get that it doesn't make me 
too upset. No, right, okay. <laughs> the species going extinct. Some obviously should be protected more than others, but isn't, well, there's a large amounts of species go extinct yearly. Yeah, and there's obviously no shortage because they're in Sweden. We could just we could just just get some chicks in fifty years' time. So, yeah, <laughs> we'll see how the links go, and then we'll add them. But yeah, I yeah, it doesn't it does the whole animal going extinct? I think we're just reintroducing it for kind of Scottish heritage reasons. Yeah, and also the conservationism sort of yeah. thing. Like it's it's good to keep a diverse number of animals alive where we can. And again, like we've caused the well, an indirect way the deer have caused it, but we've caused the <laughs> increase in mortality numbers because by putting deer fences up again. So it is increased predation, but at the same time, we've not helped it. Can you eat a grouse egg? Could you eat a grouse egg? I don't see why not. You eat any egg, really? Yeah. <laughs> an egg's well, egg. I've not heard of it. An egg you can't eat. Put it that way. Well, it's true. I'm in. Maybe a platypus egg. I'm not sure about that, but or an echidna egg. Uh, yeah, that that that's murky too. No, but I mean, like a duck yeah. or a. I mean, you really, don't really see pheasant eggs around. Yeah, I wouldn't mind if the pheasant went extinct. I get, I do get your point. But yeah, that could have been a reason for them to be harvested and multiplied artificial, not artificially, but well, yeah, artificially. But anyway, yeah, yeah. On a conservation, I'm just looking at Wikipedia here, but the, the <laughs> conservation, the Western Capercaillie. Conservation status, least concern. It doesn't get any higher than right. that. You're stealing my stuff. Stop stealing my research. <laughs> <laughs> right, you hit us with Dan, then, if you've researched it, because I'm just reading, reading things off the internet. Well, it, yeah, I mean, like you said, the the Western Capercaillie, Tetra Urugalis, <clears throat> to our Latin-speaking friends out there, like you said, it's the least, con- least concern, it's on the least concern list of animals that are endangered. It's native to Belarus, the whole of the Baltic states, all of northern Scandinavia, and most of Russia. It, it's not a. It's not an unusual bird. I think the word extinct is a bit extreme. I mean, you get it in, in, Sc- in Scotland. In Scotland, sorry, yeah. In Scotland, sorry, it, it won't be. Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. It's sorry, yeah. In the same way, the lynx didn't go extinct. They went extinct. I mean, Scotland, if you so. if you look at a map of Europe where the Capercaillie is native, you can actually you can actually see where the mountains are. So you've got the Pyrenees, the Alps, the Carpathians. You know, into into Russia and into far northern Europe, <laughs> they're following a trend, and they do. See, you know, there's not many countries in Europe that don't have a population of capitalists. <laughs> they're even in Spain. They're even in Spain. <laughs> they're, I mean, that's what I'm saying. They're in Spain. They're in the Pyrenees. They're in Spain and France. They're in Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Austria, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia. Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Romania, Bulgaria. I'm just looking at a map and just telling you. Or, however, there's a population in the Ukraine that needs protected, but they're in the West, so they're not so bad. They take, they're populous in most of Russia as well, by the looks of things, and Russia's a big place. <laughs> Absolutely. But I know what you're saying. It's, it's like, for us here in Scotland, a capercaillie is something that we identify with as an animal that is native to Scotland. Yep. Probably more so than I would say the lynx, because we yes. obviously have the populations here already, so there's an established population. In the same way that we would talk about pheasants or salmon or you know ospreys, you know these animals are already established. It, it, it's hard to judge. Maybe Neil's got a point where he says that 
if we reintroduce links, it's going to kill off the Capacales. So we just get Capacales from somewhere else. What's the difference? Because they're not they're not something that's particularly special to Scotland. But then you could argue the case for everything else. What's the point of reintroducing the links? It's native elsewhere. What's the point in reintroducing sea eagles? They're native elsewhere. But the point is, is that they were native to here. So maybe they should be here. Yeah. It's a complicated. It's it's a complicated one, as usual. Um, but and and it is. You know that there are there are people who are whole. You really opposed a lot of people who are opposed to the introduction of any animal. Often those people who feel that they would be directly impacted, or their livelihoods, businesses would be directly impacted by that. And the problem with animals when you introduce animals, is that it doesn't affect somebody who lives in Glasgow or Edinburgh or Stirling. You know, they're not going to put they're not going to put links in in Kings Park in Stirling. You know, they're going to put them. They're going to. Well, I don't know. Wow. You know, it, it's people. It's people out. You know, it's 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 the three F's. It's fishery, forestry, and farmers. They're the ones that see the impact of animals being yeah. introduced. Well, I think that I think that, I think that brings us close nicely. Um, it, it was really just to note these things, have a little discussion about them, and yeah, that, that was it. It was something a bit different as well. We've not yeah. done anything like this, I think. And it was something about Scotland. It's all about Scotland, and it, like I said, these stories do come up. Uh, like Neil, Neil mentioned, the wolves, you've got the beavers, um, you've got all sorts of different different wildlife questions arising in Scotland all the time. It's, it's an interesting conversation to have, I think. So yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks very much for your thoughts. Thank you for that, Gregor. That was really good. Um, we'll move on uh, onto my topic, and I'm talking about popular culture, and I'm going to talk about H.P. Lovecraft, the man, his works, and his impact. The impact he's had. Um, do you, you guys know of H.P. Lovecraft? Not until you told not until you told me to watch his videos. That's fine. Did you watch the videos? Yes. Did you watch the videos, Gregor? Yep, I, I had heard of it, heard of H.P. Lovecraft, and primarily through board games because um, he died more than seventy years ago, which means all his works are public domain, and so they're quite popular uh, f- for theming in board games because you don't need to pay any royalties. So a lot of Cthulhu themed and H.P. Lovecraft mythos themed games are are out there and have been out there for the last fifteen years or so. Yeah. So yeah, it was mostly through that idea. Um, I'd, and be, and through those games, I'd come to sort of know some of his, not knowing the stories, but know sorts of the things with like the Cthulhu, the old ones, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the general sort of um a common thing in the HP like HP Lovecraft games is sanity and people going insane and things, which is. Mm-hmm. Uh, common in stories as well. So yeah, then you went through that and then I watched the videos. Uh, I, 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 that was a, a passing knowledge of him, basically, and then I watched the videos and I was gave a lot more information. I, I didn't know much about him, to be honest. I'd heard it, I'd, I knew his name. You know, it, it rang a bell. But I didn't know much about him until I, there was another podcast I was listening to and they did a two-part discussion about H.P. Lovecraft. He was. I thought this man's amazing. So I've been. I've been trying to learn more about him and to understand a bit more his actual influence. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a bit about who he was, biography of of who he was, sort of the, the things that sort of motivated his thinking, 
his influences, the themes used in his literature, some of the texts that he wrote, and the reach he has, so what the the impact his stuff's had. Um, and I'll stop throughout, and we'll just sort of ch- you know talk about whatever I've covered. So uh, Howard Phillips Lovecraft was born on the twentieth of August, eighteen ninety, in Providence, Rhode Island, in the United States. At a young age, in 1898, his father, Winfield Scott Lovecraft, died. For lack of a better description, he went mad. He he died of general paresis, which was a euphemism used for syphilis. So, yeah, he died of the pox, which is always charming. His grandfather was extremely wealthy on his mother's side. Uh, he made a lot of money from business and investment and those type of things. Um, and he encouraged him to, to read from from a very young age. And supposedly he was reading like things like Plutarch from a very young age, classics, classical literature from, from, from as young as five, supposedly. Uh, his grandfather had one of the best names I've ever seen for somebody. His name was Whipple Van Buren Phillips. Now, if I thought I could get call myself Whipple, I'd have to be pretty rich. So I suppose that makes sense. However, by 1904, the family finances collapsed due to unstable markets and poor investments, and they lost a lot of their money in the family. Years passed, and eventually Lovecraft married uh, Sonia Green, and they married on the 3rd of March, 1924. Sonia however, moved uh, to Cleveland, Ohio, on the 1st of January 1925 because she got offered a better paid job. And Lovecraft would not follow her because he thought it was the barren wastelands of of Ohio that he didn't want to go anywhere near. He eventually moved back to Providence in 1926, where he moved in with his aunts. And he lived with his aunts um, for, for most of the remainder of his life. And then eventually he died on the 15th of March, 1937, of small intestinal cancer. And so unfortunately he died quite, he died quite young. He was only 47 when he died, but his influences lived on. Um, I think some of that was in the videos that you watched. Yeah. So some of the things, these are the things that influenced him. For, for you see, this man was classed as conservative. He was a Republican for much of his life. Uh, he was an Anglophile, supposedly uh, on the 4th of July, he would, or around about the 4th of July, he would sign off his letters, some words the effect, and God save King George III. Um, so he was, yeah, he resented the revolution, he believed, he was an old-timey kind of guy, he was a monarchist, he believed in the aristocratic right of his family because he had a long heritage of of being Anglo-Saxon, white, American. Um, he believed in the purity of that. <laughs> However, latent, he became a bit more socialist after he saw the effects of the Great Depression, and he felt a little bit more feeling towards the common man. He was a chronic racist. He was chronically xenophobic. He despised... Main later on he wasn't so bad, but he he and his wife when they married they moved they moved to Brooklyn, 
uh, which is probably one of the most <laughs> ethnically diverse places at the time in the United States. And he was living in these apartments with people down the hall who were, you know, from all over the world. He didn't like them because they were foreign, they were dirty, they were different. I, and, and that all played a part in his work. He had a fear about everything. Uh, everything terrified him. Uh, and also he he had a strong dislike of the unknown, which applied to people and to situations and to circumstances. So he was he was a chronic worrier, um, and that 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 had a massive impact on his on his probably on his health, if not on his life and the way he approached everything. Um, so yeah, so that's that's a brief biography of of Lovecraft. He, he sounds like the kind of guy you want to go to the pub with, doesn't he? <laughs> also known for suffering from night terrors. He had everything. I mean, you 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 can name it an, an, an anxiety of some description. He probably had it. His great influences were Edgar Allan Poe, that charming jolly writer, and also a man by a man by the name of Lord uh, Dunsany, who, because he was a lord, he had a lot of free time, and he is given credit for cre- being one of the earliest writers to write a series of books which actually created a universe so in in a similar you know we talked about lord of the rings and the way tolkien created a universe lord dunsany is credited as being one of the people who created a series of texts which actually net, knitted together to create a universe of its own i want to say any questions at this point i feel like i'm giving a lecture um, <laughs> i'm listening they have listened to too me. many things. <laughs> I, I have no questions. I'm interested to know more about this because the videos were quite confusing to listen to. The, well, I, I will. I didn't find them confusing. Well, in a way, but the first one, the narrator spoke incredibly quickly. It was quickly, awful. And my head's not what it used to be, and I found it quite difficult to keep up, whereas usually I would just absorb it. That's a brief coverage of Lovecraft, that's Lovecraft's views and persuasions, that's his influences his actual writings I I didn't realise what a prolific writer he was and to the degree that he's actually influenced our literary and and commercial, you know media world um, so his, his literary themes generally focus on something called cosmicism now, cosmicism is defined as there is no there is no recognizable divine presence such as a god in the universe, and that humans are particularly insignificant in the larger scheme of intergalactic existence. It evolved into what we call cosmic horror, where it's this mystery of the universe, and there are terrible, frightening things in this universe that want to destroy us, that want to hurt us, that we don't understand and you know we're insignificant so what lovecraft is one of the things he's credited for doing is moving people from what was described as you know the, the almost like the mystical so you had like like dracula and frankenstein and things like that and, and poe's writing a bit more esoteric to actually go, tentacles it was a word that i heard used you know, he introduced the idea that there are these tangible things in this universe which don't care about us, which think that we're irrelevant and that they would happily just destroy us, you know, with very little thought. 
Uh, and obviously his themes of the fear and of the unknown sort of lead into that. Now, when it came to his actual literary works, he wrote 65 solo pieces of writing in his short life. That doesn't include pieces that he was credited for having done, you know, in, in conjunction with others. Uh, these include some of the more famous ones, like The Call of Cthulhu, which sort of gave a bit more meat to the character that is Cthulhu, Herbert West Reanimator, uh, The History of the Necronomicon, At the Mountains of Madness, which was set in Antarctica, so into the unknown, and it involved monsters which were trapped in the ice, which had supposedly been there for, for millions of years. Uh, the Shadow of Innsmouth, which was about creatures that lived in the deep of the sea, which were mysterious and terrifying and threatening. Uh, the Colour Out of Space, which was about something that crashes into the earth and it creates a colour that is beyond description. However, it mutates and changes everything around it. And the Dunwich Horror, which was about some type of unknowing horror that existed within within a property and was somehow connected to the elder gods um one of the interesting things because greg you touched up upon the 70 years and the whole yep. copywriting he never did he wanted people to use his stuff yeah and that that did come through in the the information you sent yeah i think from a, a sort of commercial standpoint if you're releasing a video game or a board game then once it's in public domain, it's a lot. There's there's no risk associated with it. Like there's no one that can sue you. If you know what I mean. But yeah, yeah no, that, that 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 did come across in his in your in one of the videos. Yeah, I mean, people have. I mean, I'll go on to the the things that they've done with the work, but people have adapted it even before you know years and decades mm-hmm. ago before that would have lapsed. But there was no there's no influence there's no consequence there was no mm-hmm. outcome because it was it was all free game. But uh, this is just a, that's just some of his texts. He he was extraordinary, extraordinarily gifted. And just to finish with, just to say the reach that he's had. If you have a film which has something to do, you could almost say anything to do with aliens, with the unknown, with the 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 imperceivable, the unpredictable, the terrifying, it could almost be given credit to Lovecraft. So the main ones that come out are The Thing, The Evil Dead by um, Raimi, Alien, and even more recently Cloverfield. You could say The Transformers are like that as well, because they are unknown and mysterious, and they suddenly appear and they show how insignificant human life is. Um, board games, D&D, games like Magic the Gathering, and there were games as well, such as Call of Cthulhu, which were directly based on Lovecraft's work. Comics, such as Hellboy, and a lot of comic adaptations done by Alan Moore. And TV, my number one TV is Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated for using Lovecraft. Lovecraft created things such as the Necronomicon, which was this book, this book of unbelievable power, evil, evil text that has been used in the Evil Dead. It was used in Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. It was, you know, it was used all over the place and it's become common law. One of the most extraordinary things about the Necronomicon is that A, it's not a real book. It's based on something that he wrote but also people believe that it was real because lovecraft created a myth that people actually thought was real the way he wrote and because he didn't limit people's ability to use his work he created 
a universe that other people could add to. So even up until this day, there are still people who produce works of Lovecraftian horror, Lovecraftian fiction, which are all using these characters and all connected together. In his books, a lot of his works focus on a place called Arkham, because nobody's heard where that's been used before. And also the uni- the Mes- Mescatonic University, which is used in a lot of other fictions as well in reference, because it's got that connection. People want to create works that sort of connect to Lovecraft. He's, like I say, until recently, I relatively, I didn't know who he was, but I had no idea the fact that he's probably, he's probably the most influential horror writer. And he's considered one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. And a lot of people don't even know who he is. So what do we think? Neil? So let's see, this guy is just a bonkers storyteller. Basically. <laughs> like, just like J.K. Rowling or J.R. Tolkien. So he's just a mad story writer from the 1800s or whatever. It's, it's quite interesting because there's two... <laughs> <laughs> you said you watched the videos, Neil. Oh yeah, it's actually, I must have been earlier than that. Um, it was later than when that! Was it early 1900s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's actually this might be completely unrelated, but there's two metal bands that have got two names that are incredibly close to it. Well, Metallica's got a song called "Call of Cthulhu." That's that's where they got that from. That's yeah. That's that's that was the book. Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, but it's spelled differently. Yeah. Right. But, well, definitely. I mean, it, but that's no where way. they got it from. Yeah, of course they did. There's also a band called Necrogoblicon that I listen to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they got the name yeah. from. Well, they, they, you know, they, 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 they changed it. If you were to type in, if you were to do like a Wikipedia search or a Google search of like where you would find Cthulhu, the list is very long. Oh yeah, but but the bit that got me by surprise is the bit I was kind of unsure that I'd never heard of in the film, not in the in the videos, was this cosmic horror that I'd never heard about before. That was new to me. But then you related it to things like Alien and Life, I guess, the Ryan Reynolds film. Uh, there was a there was a film recently called I think was it Arrival with Amy Adam Amy Adams. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, similar thing. Well, there was it was well, yeah, and anything. It's a broad statement, but I'm going to stick with it. If you take anything that has sort of like a, a science fictiony horror slant, where something really strange happens out of the blue and people aren't able to process it and it's all very mysterious and it's you know all about the unknown and 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 fear and what people are experiencing then you could probably credit to somebody you know to lovecraft that he came up with this i mean look at the even look at some like independence day and you got those creatures with the daft tentacles at the back of them like until lovecraft things didn't have tentacles men in black yeah, exactly. Men in Black. I mean, all these things. If you know, if they've got, if they've, or there was the one. Kirsten Stewart did a film recently about being stuck, trapped at the bottom of the ocean, and then at the very end, they have Cthulhu. <laughs> and it's just like what? <laughs> but it, it's it's like it's free game, you know, because it, it it it's like Gregor says. A, you don't need to worry about it now because it's all lapsed. And B, in the first place, he didn't care. So you could use what you want. Yeah. Oh, well, that that video was just... It was too much to handle. Fried my brain. 
listening to that for 27 minutes. <laughs> and I, gave, I gave you the nice fluffy tin one as <laughs> <Yes>. well. <laughs> but yeah, I got a little excerpt of it. <laughs> what about you, Gregor? What do you think? It's interesting you say, I don't know if it's just the, like I say, because I've heard of him, but it's interesting you say no one, like, is relatively not not that well known. I suppose I, I, growing up I'd never heard of him. It's only sort of the last like I say sort of 10 years or so that he's come into my consciousness but I don't know if it's it is. it has become quite popular in that sort of I hesitate to use the phrase but like the sort of uh, uh, like modern nerd geek culture sort of thing mm-hmm. like board gaming role playing games that sort of like geek and sundry, that sort of uh, material. Yeah. Like it is, it is there, and it is sort of well known now. So I don't know if it's just because I'm sort of coming from from like that angle. At the same time, you're saying it's highly influential. Um, I'd agree, but I think I'd, I'd say more, like you say you could credit Lovecraft, and it's probably true. But I think it's more sort of indirect and I'm sure sure you mean this, but like an indirect influence influence now. So you've had yeah. it's not as if modern film producers or uh, screenwriters are looking at or have read or like you say even heard of Lovecraft, but they've seen yeah. this they've permeated media so much over the last hundred years that all this stuff's like come through. So yeah, it's, it's similar to it I I'd equate it to what Tolkien did for mm-hmm. fantasy literature in that sort of initial world building uh, to what Lovecraft did for, like you say, the sort of cosmic horror. I mean, Tolkien's probably got had further reach, I think. Yeah. It, it, but not to say, but like you said, the examples you gave were quite far reaching, but I think it's you can trace a clearer path from modern day high fantasy to Tolkien because. Mm-hmm. They're in many cases they're very similar, whereas with Lovecraft I think it's more difficult to draw the line. But it's not to say that it's not being highly influential. No, 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 I know what you mean. Lovecraft, he wasn't unsuccessful in life, but what he was trying to tell was perhaps a little bit ahead of the people who were trying who were hearing it. But it in fact influenced, like you say, it's it's almost like subversive the way it influenced it you don't see it necessarily mm-hmm. but it put ideas in people's minds and he created something when he wrote he didn't sit down and went right you know like tolkien would have done where he would have created this universe in his mind and in his notes and anyone who's seen the collection of of writing that tolkien had it was extraordinary mm-hmm. But for someone like Lovecraft, he created these... They were novellas. They weren't even books. You know, mm-hmm. you could take a load of Lovecraft's work and it would probably be as thick as just one of, you know, one of Tolkien's pieces of work. You know, he wrote short stories. They were usually between 500 and 1,000, you know, words. They weren't long, but they made a point. And I think that's sort of what where they separate in a way is that for Lovecraft he was writing pieces and not sort of trying to make a point about the connection people had to find the connection and he wrote it in a mythological way as well mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, he he wrote, he created this universe of, you know, what well, the the eld the, the elder ones, almost like gods, but actually they were like aliens. So he, he blurred the line between theology and horror and you know science fiction, so to speak, and, and, he, and he created this world where, you know, it's almost ancient alien esque. And that brings us on to this week's Conspiracy Corner. (laughs) I mean, would you guys consider reading some of his stuff, do you think? Do you think it would be something you'd look into? I'd have said no until you said there were 500 to 1,000 words. And so I'd certainly consider it. Yeah, it's far down the list, but I'd certainly consider it. Yeah. Neil, would you listen to the audiobooks? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, be, I, bet they, I bet they exist. I've got plenty of credits to spend. Yeah, they do. Not yeah, they so. do. Uh, and, and funnily enough, at, at the games night the other night, we were talking about Nick Cage. And Nick Cage recently starred in an adaptation, an attempted adaptation of one of his books, The Color, the Color Out of Space. One of the things I found that one of the problems that seems to exist in for for Lovecraft is he wrote so abstract that it's really hard to adapt a screenplay from it. I was thinking that is there nothing is there anything that's been based fully based on his material? A hundred percent. They've tried. For example, Cthulhu. If you read some of his descriptions of the creature Cthulhu, it's just words like it is beyond all comprehension and reckoning and just messes with your mind. So it doesn't actually tell you anything about it. It just tells you a description of how you're going to feel when you see it. And like, you know, like the problem with like things like the color out of space is he's talking about a color that doesn't, that, that, that is beyond comprehension. So how do you turn that into a, into something to put on the screen? Because if you make it blue, it's going to be blue. I comprehend that colour. Um, but in the film, I think they made it magenta, because it's not a naturally occurring colour. So they went, oh, make it magenta. However, a successful one was the reanimator. That was made, those were made years ago, the reanimator films. And that's just about somebody like reanimating dead flesh. You know, it's kind of a bit Frankenstein-y kind of feel to it uh, that was a successful adaptation because it was quite straightforward there was no monsters or anything in it to try to adapt but everything else seems to be a struggle because it's sort of these these abstract descriptions that is love craft in a crazy cosmic horror-y nutshell surprised i've never heard of him so we'll move on then and we will delve into everyone's favorite segment of the show Conspiracy Corner. I mean, Board Game Boulevard. (laughs) Come on down to Board Game Boulevard, bringing you board game reviews and insights you can trust since 2020. Thanks, Dan. Yep, this week we're discussing a lighter board game uh, called Celestia. Is re-implementation of a game called Cloud9, which was released back in 1999. Uh, but the modern implementation, or the one you can buy today, is Celestia, released in 2015, designed by Aaron Weissblum. Yep, published by Blam. As with an exclamation mark. In Celestia, it's a, it's a quite a light game. Push your luck is probably its main element, which means that you're faced with a decision every round whether you go so far up a track and you decide, do I want to go risk, risk it to go further, or do I want to bank my wins? 
that I've received thus far. So, in the game of Celestia, you play the role of an, uh, an adventurer or explorer. You're on an airship together with your uh, with your um, sort of adversaries, and off to new lands. But every time the airship moves to a new land, you need to encounter different trials, uh, such as weather, pirate attack, I think is another one, uh, lightning. And so you roll a dice to determine what trials you need to face. And you've got a hand of cards, and you need to have the card that matches that particular trial. And only one person can contribute the cards for that round, and that's the captain. And prior to this, everyone needs to decide... Do they think this current captain's got what it takes to get us to the next location? Or do I bank my winning state and get out of here? And the further you go up, the, the more locations you go, the further the further you go in terms of the locations, the more points you get. And it's first the set number of points wins. Uh, there's other things, or sort of special cards you can do to help out the captain or to be able to re-roll a dice um, and so on to make it easier or harder for uh, for people to reach their de- the group to reach their destination, we played it last face to face game session. It says thirty minutes. That's probably about right. We played it with five people. It goes up to six, two to six. I'd say it's probably better. It probably work better with more people. It's, it's got it's, in terms of design, it's really nice. You've got a little model spaceship that you put together uh, with Beller that you put all your little pawns in. But yeah, half an hour. I think that's fair. We were maybe a wee bit longer. Uh, we can all remember it now. <laughs> but yeah, um, thoughts. Start with you, Neil. I did. I did like it, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't rate it that highly personally. I think it right because again, it's kind of luck, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is luck, and it's you. You got a decision: do you want to push your luck or not, or do you want to sort of play it safe? And that, that's what it comes down to. I think it can trigger some. Unsportsmanlike behaviour around the board with that kind of game. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's luck, but it's also reading reading people to the extent because and playing probabilities because you need to work out right this per- this captain's got three cards in their hand. What are the chances are going to be able to get through the next stage? It's low, so do I want to take that chance? And then you're thinking they've got five cards in their hand. Have they got what they take? Have they got the the right cards in their hand? But they could also screw you, can't they? They need to play. No, it's in the oh, best yeah. entrance to get to the next location. They want to keep going, yeah. Yeah. But they get a prize if they stay on the ship and they keep going. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. so the further you go, the more points you yeah. get per location. And so, ideally, you want to get to the end, but you want other people to drop out on the way. Yeah. So they don't also get to the end. It's quite a dramatic game, the way it's, the way it's done, but no, it's because of the amount of luck that's involved. Yeah. I think it's because it's a short game, yeah. though. The look, I don't, I don't mind the look too much. Dan, over here, it was, it was all right. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, bluff and counter bluff, and you're trying to sell something. You know, you're trying to catch people out as well. You want to yeah. see if you can get them to to jump ship, even though you're gonna be fine. I like the way counters. It was counters, wasn't it? It was, or cards. It was cards. The cards. Yeah, there was dice cards. There was counters for the locations, I suppose. That's what you call them, large counters. Yeah, um, and you know you're trying to you're trying to you you're trying to do well, but at the same time trying to put other people off from doing well and discourage them from staying on the boat. Yeah, it was it was all right. I mean, it was quite 
quite a shouty game. <laughs> well, they, they all are at that time of the morning, aren't they? At that time of the morning, oh, yeah, especially two individuals in particular. And it was, yeah, it, it, it was all right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, selling, I'm not selling it to myself. No, neither of you have sold it to anyone, I think. To be fair. I, I like it. For what it is, it's good. I think it's for a really light 30 minute game. We could have played again. Like, it was that sort of game. Yeah. We play a couple in a row. We can't just play big games all the time. And no. it's good for a sort of end of the night or between a game, like between games sort of game. Filler game, if you will. So, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll kick off the reins. I'd give it. It just all comes back to seven, doesn't it? I'll probably give it a six and a half. What? I feel I feel deserves more than that because for what it is, it is a very good game. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt with a six. Right. I was going to go five point five. And Dan, I'd probably. I mean, it's not a bad rating on the grand scheme of things. I'd probably give it a five. We did only play one game. That was maybe why I'm being skeptical. There's not yeah. there's not much to learn from yeah. a second game that you didn't get from the first. I feel. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. It's a quick game, so you know once you've done it, you've done it. Yeah, I'm I'm actually happy with a six and a half. Okay, it's not a game I'd recommend you go out and buy if you're if it's your first game. There's not like I say, there's not much to it. If you're just look, if you've got a few games and you're looking for something quick to play with friends when they're round round the night for dinner or whatever, it's good. I'd say it's good for that, like an after dinner game sort of thing. Um, yeah. without much too much strategy but it's a bit of fun fair enough yep so that's it for me thanks very much cool thank you Gregor and up next we have Neil with his top five <laughs> this is the top five thanks Dan yeah so I decided to bring this to the table I'm surprised we've not done it but I guess it's quite a hard subject to get pinpoint because you may feel different on different days who's your biggest inspiration through your life or who you just generally appreciate so i've brought the top five idols on this day give us a definition what's the definition define your parameters someone you either appreciate how they've conducted themselves and or what they've done for other people or how they've inspired people that have inspired you or just people you appreciate what they've done. Can I get 20 minutes to read the list then? <laughs> <laughs> or you can you you don't have to appreciate everything they've done, but certain aspects. <laughs> oh, that allows for a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> I'm sure they probably won't be in order, but top five idols. Well, I put mine in order. Well, I put mine in general order, but as Dan would say people we haven't i've made my list fairly varied so there's a widespread of subjects inspire you in different ways and we will kick off with you gregor number five right so it was odd to make in this list i will be honest this was one of the first people i thought of <laughs> and it comes down to one moment and the, i think this is what we're talking about i don't think i could find anyone that completely admire every aspect of their life and I try to emulate. I remember thinking when I was at university I should really become more fashion conscious and have like a sort of um, style idol 
if you know what I mean, like to shadow someone in terms of their style. And I picked Jay Z, uh, so I bought some Rockabare stuff. So similar builds. He's probably a bit taller. Um, so I've got more here, but I might might re uh, re look at that. Um, but so I'm coming more for that perspective, picking an individual and then for key aspects, not necessarily the whole thing, the, the whole package. You know what I mean? Because there's some people on well, an extended list that. Um, I certainly don't, don't disagree with them in the vast majority of what they say or do. But anyway, number five, Eric Cantona. Anyone see that one coming? No. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> uh, as you both know, not a big football fan. This comes. This comes down to. I remember seeing him on the Jonathan Ross show, and he's doing an interview at Friday Night with Jonathan Ross years ago, and I, I watched it again today, and it was it was just as good as I remember, to be honest. But this was well after his playing career. Um, and he'd... What was it? Looking for Eric, I think was the name of the film that he just brought out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. T- 2009, so yeah. So 12 years after he finished uh, finished playing for Manchester United. And he'd spent basically the 12 years after that uh, in the movie game acting. He's also got some other um, production directorial credits as well. Um, and he he basically gave this interview. He's, he's twelve years in his new career, and it came down to the one question actually. Um, Jonathan Ross asked him. Says, "Do you?" And this this sums up the rest of my list. I would say actually, I, I didn't go into it thinking this, but Jonathan Ross asked him, "Do you still along the lines of Do you still play now? If you, there's a game going on, with kids in the street, do you go go over and like show off?" And uh, he's just he, he just sort of shakes his head. He says, "No, I do something else now." And I thought that was really. Really interesting. It's almost as if, like, football didn't define not not in the way you see people go on and all they want to talk about. Like musicians go on all they want to talk about their new album. Mm-hmm. It's it sort of in that deliberate way. It wasn't like that. It was just yeah. you could tell he, he'd mentally moved past that part of his life and he was completely engrossed in this new new career. And I, I think that's the part that I admire. That he's obviously had a moment of sort of reflection after he's finished football or while he was playing football and thought, what do I want to do? And he's come up with, I want to uh, try my hand at acting. I want to be involved in the filmmaking process, and mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's the crux of my admiration for a lot of people on this list. Is the, is that time they take to to reflect on things and do what's in their best interest, and and, and, and that nobody detriments anyone else in, in the same in the same vein. Sort of a sort of principled outlook for their own interests. If you will, I I just assumed that you picked him because of his seagull speech. Well, there's two other bits I really like about it, um, uh, admire about him, um, and that is that well, the seagull speech is is good. Uh, Seagull seagull quote (laughs) is excellent. I don't know if you've seen that, Neil. I have not. Think of brilliance. When the seagulls follow the trawler, it is because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. That's, that was his press conference. After, that was the extent of his press conference after he got uh, he was that was it convicted. After that's what he said, I don't know, maybe after trial, where he where he of the fan with the kung fu kick and follow up punches. Uh, the other one is the goal he scored after coming back from the ban. Uh, Dan, you'll know it. The one where yes. he, he gives a one two outside the box on the sort of right hand side of the goal and it comes back to him one yep. one touch chips over the goal I mean couldn't be more top left corner it, there was no more precise a place shot I've ever seen but he chips it and he stops immediately and just 
you can see him the camera stays back but he just he's obviously thinking this is this is going to be close will it go in but it looks like he's saying this is just absolutely excellent I'm just going to stand here and enjoy this there's no follow up there's no this is going to hit the bar and be there for the rebound it was just what an excellent struck, struck shot it's exactly how I wanted to go uh, pre- precision top left corner uh, he just stands for a moment, turns around almost to face the camera that's panned in on him, and then he just slowly raises his arms, uh, just completely deadpan, which is if, well, one of the best goals and reactions ever in the Premier League. Um, so that's yeah, yeah, that's also uh, admirable, I think. But yeah, Eric Cantona for the reasons listed, my number five. Didn't see that coming. He's slightly, slightly before my time, ish. Yeah, yeah. Finished, finished with Man U in 1997. Well, heaven help you with my list, Neil, because <laughs> there's nobody alive George for these people. Right then, number five. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, like Gregor said, uh, I reflect that when it came to come up with this list, it is a near impossible task to come up with a list of idols because when I actually sat down to think about it, I kept thinking more and more people because I think there are different things about people's character and attitude and approach and that have influenced me and thought back to when we had that conversation before when we when I did the top five people to invite to a dinner party so I, I kind of I kind of leant back on that a bit and thought back so one of the people I'm not going to say number five one of the people on my on my list uh, would be as I said I've mentioned before origin of alexandria my second century homeboy from uh, the roman empire who was a scholar a christian scholar theologian writer and the reason i pick him for my list is because he's well not not because he is one of the most persecuted early church fathers that that ever existed but because what he actually said um, his ideas about forgiveness and and salvation and that everyone everyone has a second chance everyone can be saved even the devil himself uh sort of you know makes me realize that in life everyone is worth you know you, c- you shouldn't hold things against people because people are worth people are worth a second chance but yeah for, for me he and like i say he was he was lambasted and he was condemned and only relatively recently have has you know are, are they really talking about him again properly and the actual influence he had he was he was a very prolific writer and he was a he was he analyzed he was always quite aristotelian in his approach which i quite like as well um just just a, a good person to follow if you <laughs> if you're looking for a second chance and i think people in this world one of the things that they want most is second chances so yeah, my number five. Thank you, Dan. My number five is this is might become cross quite biased. Is the original TW Tom Watson? Tom Watson followed him rounds from as long as I can remember. <laughs> you have to now justify this. You have to now justify <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, I would say, well, biased because due uh, to my godfather, as long as I can remember, we followed him round to the British Open every round that he played and he never really seemed I never he never he would never seem to get angry at anything you see you'd maybe have oh man I missed in his incredibly strong American accent uh, but he would always be very calm and collected 
and he would all he would always chat to the fans after a round as well if they were if there were people waiting for him. And what he almost had one of the greatest comebacks in golfing history. The great, I'd, 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 I'd say it's the greatest achievement in sporting history had it happened. Yeah, come back at the age of sixty-four. Need to fact check that. Fifty-nine. <laughs> Is it fifty-nine? Okay. I'm sure he was fifty-nine. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was later, closer to the sixty-five years than that. No, nineteen forty-nine. So it would have been fifty-nine. He would have been fifty-nine. Because two thousand nine open. Oh, Christ, that long ago. Right. Okay. At the age of fifty-nine, went into a playoff for the Open Championship and did miss a small putt to win it. Short putt to win it was eight feet. Oh, less than that. Well, he was in the middle of the fair with his second shot. Let's chuck figures out. Oh, stop giving figures, figures. Every time you put a figure in, it requires a five-minute investigation. <laughs> but yeah, he's, a, he's an eight-time major champion. And he's he's known, even though he's not top... He is the top tranches, I guess, of greatest golfers ever lived major-wise, but he's also known as one of the best personalities in golf as well through history. But yeah, I am quite biased because I have followed him and I still, I don't, I've even seen him at Senior Opens. Good choice. I, str- I did struggle with, I mean, this is a bit of a spoiler, but I did struggle with sports people for reasons that will come on to when you give one of your later ones no problem. Right, my number four. Yes, Gregor, on to your number four. This is what, this is, this is one that you, oh, you may recognise some mention often enough. Tom Vassell, or as he's known in the house, uh, don't you criticise Tom Vassell, he's a god among men. <laughs> I don't think I've heard what? you mention him. No. No, no. Well, he is. He's the, let's say, main founder and head of the Dice Tower sort of board gaming network. But it's a, it's a sort of um, board game media company that put out reviews, podcasts, live plays, all sorts of different board game media. And he's sort of head of that. Uh, but he, he's, so he started, he's a, from Pennsylvania, I believe, the Christian faith. He moved to Korea as a missionary, and there, when when there, started a board game podcast in two thousand and five with his friend Joe Stedman, and that was well, what's that sixteen years ago. It's now it's now in the seven hundreds in terms of episodes, so going strong, and it's really only grown from strength to strength. And it's one of the main sources of my sort of board gaming knowledge and sort of media input and he's probably one of the most influential but he's so sort of evangelical about the hobby as well that he's helped to spread I think no end in terms of sales and in terms of reach and I suppose this comes down to another this is this is similar to the other Canton I think but um, he's left his job now to pursue this full time it's not, I mean I'm sure he's done well but it's not. <laughs> it's not by any means a sort of Massively lucrative business. He was a teacher before, yeah, but it's all about sort of following your passion. And he's obviously had that sort of moment of self-reflection or continued reflection. But yeah, follow, following your passion um, is, is, a, is another one, and it's something I try to incorporate into my life. Um, I'm fairly passionate about my work in terms of the output, uh, but I've also tried to incorporate hobbies into my into my downtime. That's become more and more difficult with the child and <laughs> other uh, other activities. But extracurricular activities. extracurricular activities, <laughs> but generally, I've tried to 
even to sort of 2008, 2009, I made a conscious effort to try, sort of incorporate more hobbies into my free time. Um, and it's, it's it's drawn by sort of people like Tom Vassell, who this this was a hobby for him. It's now become a full time job. Yeah, number four, Tom Vassell. So my my number four is somebody that we all know and we all love with a great deal of you know thought and respect. Maimonides. <laughs> no, no, I said respect. <laughs> For the humble lister, Neil was pointing at himself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maimonides, also known as the Rambam. He was a philosopher, astronomer, and physician who lived from 1138 until 1204. Fun fact, he was the personal physician for a time to Saladin of the Third Crusade fame. And the reason Maimonides makes its way his way onto my list is because I'm biased uh, and he has... His writings have a massive influence on my spiritual side, and he is a he was a deep thinker, another Aristotelian thinker, um, systematic. He compartmentalized and processed and restructured the way that certain theological ideas were understood, and. Uh, he sort of fits more in line into my theological way of thinking about things. So he, he was just so clever and so, so open and much like origin, it was all about love and inclusivity and, you know, f- the spirituality, which I think is really important. And he sort of just, he just tugs on me heartstrings. So yes, my number four. Thank you very much, Dan. My number four is, I don't think you would have heard of him. Samvel Yervinian. Oh, you'd be correct. We don't even know if you've said it right. That's how little <laughs> do you know, we know. Do you know what it is? <laughs> I've only heard it spoken in a French accent, so I don't know the... Samvel Yervinian, Armenian violinist, who has toured with Yanni for over 10 years. Do you know... Are you aware of Yanni? Who's Yanni? Uh, we're aware of Yanni. Well, I'm, I'm aware of Yanni, yeah. Yanni, the composer. Pianist. Pianist, composer, and he's famous for his tours that he's done where he's kind of included trance music in his orchestra. Let's try and show you. Yeah, well, we did 2005, I think, was the one I've most watched. And I came across this as I do when I'm sitting on a Friday and Saturday night, past in the early hours of the glass of whiskey, and flicking through YouTube, and I see... Yanni and I listened to them, and I was just blown away, and I listened to them for years. Is it Yanni the... Sorry, the Greek composer? Yes, not French. I've tried to go to one of his world tours, it did get cancelled in the, the UK version, and it's a bit past. I'm not, I don't think of coming back anytime soon. Andy's had different ones, but the we'll get back to Samville Yervinian. Aye, aye. Why is, your, why is he on this list? He's one of the best violin solos I've ever heard my well, the best violin solo I've heard my entire life on one of their songs, and just just blown away by his excellence of 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 all the songs I've listened to him. I just and I as a violinist in my previous years, I know how hard it is the stuff he was doing, and I'm surprised he's only I'm looking at his biography here. It's only played with Yanni between 2003 and 2019. But yeah, I, I suggest you check Yanni out because they are very good to listen to and very impressive. And they're very interesting as well. They'll go through, they'll, 
they'll go through the whole orchestra and everyone will do their solo and they've got lots of peculiar instruments with great backing tracks. And the composer's pretty funny as well. Sorry, like Andrew and Andre Ryu. Who's that? Oh, come on. <laughs> you're you're Andre bashing Ryu. on Dan for not know knowing who he is. <laughs> you don't know either. I know Andrew Ryu. I've heard, you know. I've seen the name. Surely, he's a violinist, Neil. He's got a Stradivarius. Uh, yeah, I'll need to check him out. King of the Waltz, they say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will check him out, yeah. But, well, yeah, I'd be surprised if it compared to Yanni, but if it was in a, in a similar style. Right, Gregor, number three. My number three, well, Neil have heard of these people, and Dan, you'll have heard of at least one of them. Warm, so there's two here, actually. Two from the financial sector. Uh-oh. Um, similar but different. Uh, Warren Buffett and John Bogle. Oh, shit. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> or affectionately known as Jack Bogle. John Bogle founded Vanguard in 1975, uh, made low-cost index tracker investing available to the public uh, for the first time, and is now is still now a sort of market leader in index funds and low costs for your average investor. Warren Buffett's owner, part owner, or co-owner of the investment management company Berkshire Hathaway. But he's, despite his, um, I mean, Warren Buffett's one of the most successful and well-known active investors in, it's certainly in sort of the hedge fund game, or the sort of, what's the best way to put this? Managed funds. Yeah, sort of managing large funds and generating profit. Yeah, it's sort of institutional investor, let's see. It's probably the best thing, rather than, it's not, it's not like a, He's certainly not a day trader, but he's not—he's not mucking about with a couple of million. <laughs> he's got billions he's looking after. So to generate a return on that sort of um, that sort of bankroll is impressive as well. Uh, but yeah, despite despite his his active investing credentials, he's a big proponent of the average investor investing in index funds. He was a big fan of uh, John Bogle as well. He, he said John Bogle passed away a couple of years ago. The very old age of eighty-nine. Uh, Warren Buffett's still going strong at. 85 or 96 years old, I think now. But Warren Buffett said of Jack Bogle that uh, he's done more for the average American average American investor as a whole than anyone else. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And not only that, Warren Buffett lives by that mantra as well. He's a, a sort of low-cost liver, as it were. He once bought a house, I think, in 19, the 1970s <laughs> for the princely sum of several hundred thousand dollars. And he calls it Buffett's folly because... That that amount invested in his company would have would have reached into the sort of millions by now. Um, but he still has McDonald's every day. Um, but he's, he's he doesn't live a lavish never never has lived a lavish lifestyle. Always been very frugal. And I mean that's the key wealth, isn't it? Inve- investing in index trackers and spend less money than you make. So yeah, I do respect him. Why? I do respect Warren Buffett. I do love to make fun of him. And I, I know he doesn't drink a can of cola and eats McDonald's every day, but for him to say that is a great boost for the companies he has shares in. So it's one of his advertising. <laughs> oh, that was such a that was that was not a backhanded compliment. That was a backhanded insult. It, I've, I've no doubt he does say it for the um, the marketing because he, he goes on about. I mean, he goes about his companies at Daniel statements as well. And good luck cutting that down out as I drop my pen lid on the floor <laughs> as I'm speaking. But yeah, he's great to make fun of. He's probably the most quoted man on the internet <laughs> from young. <laughs> Don't know about that. Not the internet. Maybe the financial circles. 
Hang on, let me just smack that one back. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that can be verified. <laughs> for one. It's maybe the most quoted on Wall, the, the, the Wall Street Vets subreddit, maybe. But <laughs> Well, they love to make fun of him as well, maybe that. Well, that's what, that's what I mean. <laughs> but yeah, this doesn't really fit in with the rest of them, but I just like what they've done for... It fits in with my own sort of ideologies, which are basically on their own. <laughs> so to say that they they fit in with me is slightly um, backwards. But yeah, I just really appreciate what they've done for the sort of average investor, what they've done for me <laughs> specifically in terms of my, my increased knowledge. Um, not that I've learned from them directly necessarily, but it's, it's the sorts of uh, things that they've been advocating for I think has been really important. Good yeah, my number three, Warren Buffett and Jack Bogle. Dan, number three? My number three is complicated because I, I think it would be, be a disservice to me to not actually relate it back to people I know. And I think if I had to add people onto this who are classes, sort of people I would like to emulate or follow the example of or you know, learn something from, it would probably be people who have sort of led me to where I am in my profession as well and those people uh, were all teachers my primary four to seven teacher amy crookshank my primary school head teacher norma young even teachers i've known more recently have influenced me greatly on the way i undertake my work you know i, I sometimes even think what would what, what would amy do in these type of situations because she was she was such a such a great example i mean there are secondary teachers my secondary school chemistry teacher taught me how to be a, a sarky bastard so you know there's a lot, a lot of life lessons i got out of out of these people and and i owe them a great service because if they hadn't been there in my life to show me way of doing things and ways to approach things and sort of temperaments and things like that i probably wouldn't be where i am today so number three sort of is a dedication to all the the teachers i've known and have influenced me excellent dan that's a good one just just a note on that sorry because i've not chosen anyone all mine are well apart from jack bogle are all living in the top five and i didn't pick anyone there was obviously family members on this well one family member on the table and there was friends and mentors and all sorts that I've went for sort of people in the public eye. I was about to change one. Yeah, mine's the public eye because I could. I was tempted to change one, but I'm not going to. Right. I'm going to keep it as I was going to change one to someone who I respected that would be that I respected in my career, but I'm not going to. Mine's in the public eye. Mine's is also this one's also pretty complicated. It is the host of the biggest podcast in the world <laughs> Joe Rogan and say what you- oh fuck I'm out <laughs> he's made, made mostly put negatively in the public eye for his 5 to 10 controversial podcasts he has every year uh, but aside from that he does put up about 3 or 4 podcasts a week and the and what he's done is he's for comedians especially is what I appreciate he's Lifted a lot of people's careers into the stratosphere, and aside because he's got the platform, he gets a lot of people with books on. But yeah, no, but he always lives by on his podcast. If he, if he finds someone funny, obviously he's big in the comedy scene. If he finds someone funny, then he will bring them on the podcast and kind of elevate their career. And he's just made so many people's careers. And I'm aware of a lot of comedians because of him. 
For better or worse. For better or worse, but yeah, they are. <laughs> but they're from all over the comedy scenes, all of, in all shapes and forms. But no, I, I, yeah, I appreciate him for that because he's he's a nice guy, and he, and he tries and he and he's up on his t- tall pedestal and he tries to lift off the other people up onto that pedestal. Say what you want about him. I don't disagree with your choice. I don't think I wouldn't agree with your reasons though. Like I, I think I, I think he's a little bit. I think he's a legitimate choice because I, I, I was familiar with Joe Rogan prior to the Joe Rogan podcast, and he sort of fits the remit of the other people on my list in that he's always done what he wants to do and things that he's passionate about, and he's always like been in charge of his own career in that way. He's done stand-up co- comedy. He's done TV shows and he's left TV shows when he's wanted to leave them. He's done commentating. He's doing his podcast now. So he's always he's doing what he thinks is right. You can't on a basic level disagree with that. Um, although I can disagree with other aspects of it. But he is, he is to some degree sort of principled and goes after what he wants. In a, he follows his dreams in a certain, in a certain respect and he's sort of in charge of his own destiny as well. Which I admire about him. I don't. I don't think I'd agree with it the same way. For the reasons you've listed, so I would. The second, a se- a second reason would be he does. I mean, he runs three incredibly busy full time jobs at the same time. Yeah, which is monumental. The task. But my my main reason is because he's the best person I know that pulls someone that helps people with this platform. He, he helps. He helps people in a huge way, and he's lifted. God knows how many people's careers into the stratosphere. I think, though, the issue is, is I think we need to put it in context, because you say they put them into the stratosphere. Stratosphere suggests that they're globally successful. Name one for me that who, before Joe Rogan, wasn't globally successful and is now globally successful. Tim Dillon. Tim Dillon. Arish, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to see Tim Dillon in London in April. Yeah. I, Tim I, Dillon? I, I, do, I do agree. You must have heard of him, Dan. He's played in, he's played at the fringe in Scotland a few years ago. Neil mentions every time you speak to him. Yeah. Every every man and his collie dogs performed at the fringe at some point. It's yeah. hardly a great achievement. <laughs> I don't know if Joe Rogan has. Yeah, but for a small time American comedian. It's... For a small for a small time American comedian, performing in the fringe is one of the easiest things you can possibly do. I'll tell you that right now. If you're a small time American comedian, you want to build your base in America. It's kind of just a risk coming over here. Yeah, financially it's a bit of a risk because the combination is quite high, but it's not uncommon oh, to see a, a very small American act at the fringe. I get that, yeah. Or of any nationality. Harry Shafir, Tom Segura. I, I agree with what you're saying, but I don't think that's a reason why I admire him. I would say so, for me. So, Gregor, number two. Number two, our joint one. You won't hear of these people either. They are well. This is this is more sort of it's along the same lines again. Um, I've got Adam Warrock's my main one. Tribe one, Megaran, Doctor Awkward. Uh, these are all sort of nerdcore artists. Um, I do hate that term, but it's sort of um, uh, rap music about again nerd nerd culture. Sort of Adam Warrock specialised in comic books. It's named after a comic book character. You must have heard him talk about MC Lars in the past. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, sorry, a similar, similar genre to MC Lars. Remember the car journeys to, to Disneyland. Yep. So yeah, I mean, Adam Warwick worked at a law firm, and he gave up his his job to pursue his career in rap music, which just find again, it's, it's about that sort of 
self-reflection and then doing what you, doing what you want uh, in a way that pursues your dreams, uh, not to the detriment of anyone else. And the fact that the fact that they, like a lot of these people, had the courage to give up steady, steady jobs. I mean, some some are afforded the luxury of sort of having good jobs in the first place that can fund them for a few years or working being able to work in parallel until they make enough income and so on. But some people just sort of give it a go, <laughs> which is I think highly commendable. It's just it's not even anything I really aspire to either. I don't think it's it's just a sort of I just find it. It's the attitude more than anything else. It's not. It's not as if I've got any real desire to sort of stop working and pursue a, a, a vastly different career. Um, I've got some ideas for retirement, but I'm more than happy in my job just now. So yeah, Adam Warrock, uh, it it Ali. Excellent. Dan number two. My number two. Uh... <laughs> oh God. You know, at least, at least you know I'll be consistent. Um, my number two is the the late great Chancellor of Prussia. So before the you know prior to German unification and post, the, the man himself, Otto von Bismarck. What a man! What a guy! You know, and and beside all his politics and scandal and troublemaking and all that nonsense, the reason that he's there on my list is because I remember at school learning about him when we did about German unification in history. And the thing that always came up was no matter what he did, he followed very simple principles, which he called realpolitik which means that you should do what you can do, not what you should do. Um, there's no, you know, you can make all the promises in the world, you can claim that you're going to do this, that, the other, but you're better off just doing what you can do and, and saying what you can say and and being, I interpret it as being honest and transparent about what's actually possible, um, which would be extremely refreshing in the current political climate in the world. I've always thought, you know, I always think about things. It's like, well, what can I do about something rather than what I should do? Because if I worry about the shoulds, then I'll just become more, more anxious and stressed about it. So it's the cans rather than the shoulds. Um, so, yep, Otto, my man, he is my number two. What century is he from? Uh, he is the 19th century. I've heard of Bismarck. So you should have. There's a bloody ship named after. Oh, yeah, well. that's the one I've heard of. <laughs> and a steak apple. My number two is Back to the Arts. You will be familiar with him, uh, Mr. Christian Bale. I'm familiar with him, yeah. You may know him from films such as The Big Short, The American Psycho, Prestige. So, uh, certainly The Big Short and Prestige are in my top five favourite films. And Batman. And, well, yeah, Batman. Apparently, some would some would say the best Batman that's ever been. I don't. I've never seen any of the Batman, so I can't comment. <laughs> I love the man, but his most famous and well-established roles I've not seen him in. <laughs> I would say it was, it's the American Psycho and Prestige were his most established roles, personally. American Psycho is considered a bit of a train wreck of a film. Yeah, but he is, does it. Is the acting in is phenomenal? He just be like. What do you mean established roles? Is what he's famous for. I'd say he's famous for Batman. Dark Knight's definitely his biggest film. Empire of the Sun. Uh, Empire of the Sun when he was a younger chap. 
But yes, but mainly because the he's a phenomenal actor. Obviously, that's why he's so famous. But then, yeah, have you seen the Machinist before? The one he's the very famous. I've not. No, one where he lost the shed ton yeah. of weight. Yeah, it was just it was unbelievable how skinny he got. I don't care how much you get paid. You don't do that unless you're a complete. Yeah, but you, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't care how much you get paid. So you wouldn't do that unless you're. I would do it. Would you? What for several million pounds? Yeah, but he's already. Oh, a, do he's already money. a millionaire. This is since two thousands. Yeah, but no, and it was machinist was living a capitalist world. The machinist wasn't even that big a that big a hit, but it was more. It was more the the state he got himself into, the weight he got himself down to, was just. More so than I've seen, I've more so than I've certainly seen in any other film, anything close to it. And it's just what, what, how he, how he, he was. They were saying he was doing, he was eating an apple a day and a cup of coffee. Basically, he's obviously got a physician looking after him, but he's just you don't, you don't can't do that unless you're crazy passionate into it. Just for the extremes they would go to for a role. Not saying that a lot of them don't go for extremes, but that's the craziest I've seen. And every season, every time I've seen in a film, he's just nailed it. So, Christian Bale. Right, so, Gregor, number uno. Honorable mentions first. Number uno, honorable mentions first. Rodrigo Sullivan was probably my six. Jose Mourinho. So, I really admire Jose Mourinho, but he's kind of, kind of fallen for me in recent years. Rodrigo Sullivan, I admire for his um, sort of candid interviews. His, he's had mental health problems he's talked about. Jose Mourinho, yeah, as I say, really strong when he first came out, but he, he sort of he got into a sort of blame game. Like he had it in English Premier, like under Chelsea, but like it's come basically his mantra sort in the last few jobs he's had. Um, Russell Brand is up there. Speaking of people who don't agree with their views necessarily, um, Mitt Romney. These these last two were more of versus. <laughs> Well, I never saw the moments get into this <laughs> list. <laughs> well, the last two, the last two, Mitt Romney being the first of the last two, were first for single acts, <laughs> and it was his, uh, it was his vote against um, Trump and the historic vote against Trump and the impeachment trial, and yes. the sort of reasons he gave behind that. It was still, I still found it very admirable because he was one of only over fifty odd mm-hmm. in his party to dissent. And Ryan Moore, golfer, um, famously played without. He's accomplished amateur. Um, he played without a sponsorship on the PGA Tour, or didn't take sponsorship money for a number of years in the PGA Tour, where he could have. And then he ended up sort of going with a company that he was part of running, which found that memorable. But number one, Taylor Swift. Nice reactions. So Taylor Swift. The reason why is I find that every every <laughs> what it's just sinking in. Give it a minute. <laughs> I think it's a reasonable choice. Don't like for someone that doesn't own mind, and I really admire that. She stands up for what she believes in, and which which is off which is one not to the detriment of others and usually to the, for the sort of benefit of others as well as well as herself um and she's she's not been afraid in the past to to talk up when it would be easier to be quiet about things which i i've tr- i've tried to uh, not as a direct result taylor swift <laughs> we'll give her the credit um although it might have something to do with it but something i've tried to do more i don't know if it's just because i'm getting older um 
and work with Chris. But it's something I tend to do. <laughs> That's why we're agreeing more. <laughs> in my professional life, perhaps I've become a lot more relevant in personal life, I think, uh, which is saying something. But, no, well, I've always... It's a lot easier to speak up once, you, once you've got more knowledge of things, I suppose, and as you get older and you've had more experience and sort of life in general, you're you're happier to. I mean, I've got no qualms about appearing silly or sort of ignorant, and in some cases, if I don't understand anything, or calling things out when I don't agree with them, um, or certainly less less problem than I, than I might have had um, earlier in my career, which I, which I think so. Go on essential for the sort of function in any role that you choose to choose to do. Yeah, there's been a number of you call them controversial or Taylor Swift, but she's um, she does a lot for her fans. She's a notable philanthropist, and that's another thing that I didn't mention about Warren Buffett's um, also uh, pledged a lot to a lot of his estate to charitable causes. Tom Vassell's set up his own. Charitable Foundation, Eric Cantona. I couldn't find any notable th- philanthropic work, um, but he may be doing this bit anonymous, anonymously. Who am I to to judge? Um, but yeah, Taylor was also a notable, notable philanthropist. Spends a lot of time with her fans, and I, I tend to agree with her as well, which which helps. I mean, it's, but I did I I did try my best to find someone I agreed with that didn't. Share my view, and that's why I had Russell Brand there because I don't share a lot of views with Russell Brand, particularly at this day and age. But I do sort of admire what he's doing and how he's went about it. But yeah, Taylor Swift, my number one. But any que- any questions on that? Will we will we do that? This is our ones. No questions. Are you a fan of her music? I'm a fan of her music as well. Yeah, where should be in your list, Dan? She wouldn't even be considered. Right. I have I like honestly, like if I was to actually go through people I would put on my list She'd be last. I could I could give you twenty, I could give you fifty, I could give you a hundred, she wouldn't even pass through my head. Why why not? I, I, I think she's she's a product of the times. And I feel quite sorry for her sometimes. How so honest. Because she's you know, she she started off she started off in the country scene. Yep. I'm a fan of the country music myself. Can't go on with a bit of Billy Ray, um, but and then she moved as is as is the habit of a lot of young country singers. Is either they they make it big in country, or they make it big by moving into different genres, which is what she did, and then she just developed this reputation, whether warranted or not, of being it's 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 cliche now that. Taylor Swift always writes her songs after she's broken somebody's heart and then lays clay, lays claim to it as if she's somehow been slighted, which I can neither confirm nor deny. However, she has been around the block a bit. I, I think she's... That's another thing as well. She's been... It's remarkable the sort of inconsistency and report and things like that between different artists, isn't it? Um, when you say yeah. around the block a bit. Uh, is, that, is that a slight on... Any male artist, for example, and Taylor Swift. I don't know if she's spoken out directly about this, but it certainly feels to her music. She's addressed these these. If she released an album called Reputation, she has. She also has this. She also has this habit, which I which annoys me because I do like her music, but I like it because it's unbelievably catchy. It is also. 
I agree with that, but it's also saying something though, which you can't say for a lot of songs of the similar genre. Well, that's it. But her genre isn't my type of genre. If that makes sense, we like, just said you found the songs incredibly catchy, though. I, I do, but her songs are incredibly catchy. But that, I find it quite unique to her that she has this ability to she she writes catchy songs like Boney M had hits. You know, it's they just seem to it just they just seem to catch. There is a sort of like there's a meaning behind the lyrics as well, which is. As say unique, not unique, but it's certainly um, not unique in the minority. Well, it's, it's certainly in the minority in terms of her in, in the genre she's moved into mainstream pop music. I think a lot of artists would disagree with that. Most songs have no meaning behind them in her genre. I think people would well, disagree with mo- that. Mo- modern mainstream pop music, that lyrics don't have meaning behind them. It means something to them, but it probably doesn't mean anything to well, them. It, means, it might mean something to their songwriting team. Yeah. I don't know too much about her. Our songs are catchy, uh, but the interviews I have seen, I have not been a fan of her. My number one, Taylor Swift. <laughs> right. Uh, number one. Right. My honourable mentions is, uh, like, like I'd actually have to say family, friends. Like, I could, I could pick up on characteristics from virtually anybody I know and say, oh, I quite admire that about them. Oh, Dan, you shouldn't have. Shouldn't have. Well, no, no, Greg, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Because I'm not going to get all mushy and sentimental with you. It's I not could, Neil, is it? But I'm not. I don't get mushy and sentimental mental about Neil either. Um, you know, I, I get mushy and sentimental about anybody. Uh, one name that did jump out, however, for honourable mentions is Karl Marx. Is as I've gotten older and <laughs> possibly senile, totally disagree with his ideas of government and uh, <laughs> and economic strategies. But he did say a lot about um, free time and the dangers of free time, which is worth a look into. And that's sort of why why he gets on that list, because I kind of agree with him now. But my number one, I thought I need to go for somebody who's not divisive. Nothing like Taylor Swift. Yeah, well, that's, I thought I, was, I thought I was banking a safe one as well, but no. <laughs> oh, no, no. Somebody totally under, you know, they, they were a scientist. They were... Uh, uh, you know, a, a leader among nations. They were somebody who who represents the best of humanity, as far as I can see. Are we guessing? Is that, is you... Margaret Hilda Thatcher. Yeah. yeah. There we go. So, <laughs> yeah. she, oh, she, go. she was formerly a scientist, though. <laughs> she was. I know. Uh, as protected, Dan. As protected. She she helped to invent like the whippy whippy ice cream. Yeah. Well, allegedly. Yeah. I allegedly. Like allegedly, Taylor Swift's a decent songwriter. Um, I, you know, yes, she's divisive. Yes, she will fracture families and conversations and friendships and all these type of things. Yes, she in Scotland is is the boogeyman to, to so England. many people. And Northern England, Southwest England, uh, okay, and Wales. Okay, maybe the Welsh. Um, yeah, that's not so bad. At least somebody in London likes her. At least a southeast like her. That's exactly it. You know, if it wasn't for Margaret Thatcher, Neil wouldn't be as successful as he is. So we should be able to thank him Why for is that. that? <laughs> Why is that, Dan? Because she, because she freed up the market and encouraged entrepreneurial independence and the the pursuit of personal success, which Neil embodies, I think, quite well. 
Neil, how did how did you find Margaret Thatcher's policies affected your career? I, <laughs> I'll be honest. I, I've been be, being being born the same year that the yeah, year after she, she was punted. being one being one year old when she uh, was thrown out. Part. I've been meaning to watch the Iron Lady. I know almost nothing about her apart from her closing down the mines the in mines. most of the UK, but I know very little else about her. The steelworks as well. Any any sort of major manufacturing yeah. operations in the UK. My point is, is that she was somebody who actually people didn't like the fact that she stuck to her guns. It got her in trouble in the end, but she was somebody who actually stuck to what she believed, what she thought was right. She wasn't swayed the way that other people are or have been in politics or in any position of authority or any type of job, to be honest. Um, She's somebody who, as an individual, embodied ideals which, on a basic level, a lot of people can agree with, but the problem was obviously when it came to enacting them in a position of power, such as government, and making decisions that upset a lot of people. Good pick, Dan. Right. Interesting one. You know, I'm consistent. Okay, my honourable mention, I've only got one. He was going to be on the list, so I couldn't place him properly. It's uh, Mr. Billy Conley, a famous comedian from the 80s. I've been listening to him since, since I, I shouldn't have been, at the tender age of 12. Watched all the stuff from the 80s through to the 2000s, and I went to see him finally live in 2015, as I mentioned on this podcast before. And he's still going. He's recently just got another series out. Only just. Yeah, only just. And I respect him because he's he's a very interesting, a lot a lot more interesting now that I've been listening to his book and seeing his more personal documentaries. He's a very, very, very out there guy. And yeah. he's very much into his arts, which is very peculiar. And I also I always respected him. But yeah, he's a very bohemian guy and... And I, I, I very much respected how well he played the banjo. I mean, he was professional level and played live uh, at all his gigs in the 80s and 90s. He was a professional. He yeah. was a professional, yeah, and played in bands. Yeah, so I appreciate him. But anyway, this was just an honourable mention. Uh, you know who the number one is. He needs, Another TW. He needs no introduction. <laughs> the main TW. Who are we talking about? Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods. Yeah, Tiger Woods. Uh, it's, it's a shame that he's not got the number one accolade in golf, which is the most majors one. He's still four off. It looks unlikely, but he could pinch the numbers one spot for. Well, he's joint number one for the most PGA, US PGA. In three for a tie. Three for a tie, four for the number one. Yeah, he's tied with Sam Snead at 82 for the US PGA titles, and I'd like to think he's still got at least one of those still in him. He's coming back to the game. But yeah, uh, absolutely just admiration of, it it was just, (laughs) you could sense him from a mile away, the presence that the man had. If you see him step onto the tee, he's just unbelievable. The the, the atmosphere that he created, and still does when he jumps onto the tee, and it's just never never been seen, well, involved. That's the only time I've seen it, it's the only golfer I've seen it with. Is the and it's, it's famously you'll step onto the tee in the final round with a not top ten ranked golfer and they'll just melt into his hands and they, they'll just fall apart. 
because he's got that such a big presence and brings such a ridiculous crowd with him. But yeah, Gregor, I'm sure you can share. You can uh, col- uh, not collaborate. I'm sure you can confide in my views. No, 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 no. Not confide is to keep a secret. You would you would confide in me your views. I, I mean, the whole point of being a podcast is not to confide. Yeah. <laughs> right, I'm sure you can agree with my, all of my statements I'm making about. I can agree with some of your statements, certainly, yeah. Dan, have you ever seen Tiger Woods live? Me? Yes. No. Yeah, Neil, that's a good point, actually, because Tiger Woods, when leading, when holding a share of the lead... Or outright lead after fifty four holes after three or four rounds, he fifty six tries, he's won fifty four times, and lost four, and he's forty one and two when he's led out right. Now that number's closer to, I mean, so that's a mid nineties winning percentage from that position. The tour average is closer to thirty percent. Yeah, massively influential sports sports person. An absolute powerhouse in the golf course, and someone from a sporting perspective is highly admirable because of his achievements, along with everything that leads up to that, including his work ethic and everything like that. But yes, that is my top. I was going to say that was well played, then, Neil. You avoided talking to me about this. I respected that move. I thought it was quite a sneaky. Move. That's probably quite a wise <laughs> move as well, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I knew Tiger Woods before I knew you. He was one of the few names I knew in golf, just because of his notoriety. Obviously, he'd been on a Joe Rogan podcast because his reputation was in the stratosphere. Um, <laughs> um, so, well, his comedy career totally took off after the Joe Rogan appearance. That was it. But we talked about this before when we talked about golf, and I and I think I said the same thing then. I'm not fussed. I, I, I'm not. I'm not a golfer. You know, I've never played it, let alone really, fo- really followed it, unless I had money on it. So. I couldn't really comment. Yes, he's an extraordinary golfer, and he's, you know, one of the one of the most well known and successful sports people. I would have said, not just because of what he's done in the sport, but also by reputation and fame. You know, he's so well established, and it, it's it's almost impossible to to say otherwise. But I respect because I know what. You know what golf is to you and what golf means to you, so it's up to you, isn't it? I, th- I think as well. This was a personal. This was more yeah. about the personal side yeah. for me because all the sports people that I'd considered were for their sort of personal, not achievements, but their personal side. Like I didn't pick Taylor Swift because of her, uh, we discussed her songs, yeah, the content of them. But I didn't pick her because of that. Yeah, I didn't pick Eric Cantona because uh, not like the goal, but it wasn't because of his glittering Man United career because. I saw very little of that. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it, it's it's they were all they're all very accomplished in their fields um, in terms of those two, the Eric Cantona example and Ronald Sullivan and so on. But it was more it was that combined with what they've done in their personal lives as well. Yeah, that considered them. I think it must be because you've for someone outspoken about disliking football, you've got two footballers you've mentioned. It's all two football stars you've mentioned. Two football, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and I, I, I that's the same as mine. Like I don't pick these, I don't pick these people because I'm I'm suggesting that they're somehow infallible and that the things that they did in their life were perfect. And I don't pick them because I know that one in particular is controversial. And you know, 
we may now get a flood of abuse because I've said her name from people. You know, it's the way it works, but it's it's the fact. We said it on the other one as well. I said, I'll keep mentioning it. Yeah, see you. See, people aren't offended anymore. People don't care. Will she be on your current affairs topic next week, Dan? <laughs> I don't know. I, I was going to hold a seance, so uh, we'll see what happens. Um, and like, you know, Bismarck was controversial and he, you know, he did lots of things that people didn't agree with and his opinions, some of them were appalling. I mean, Maimonides almost almost splintered his religion in half because of, of what he said. You know, Origen almost split the Christian church in half because of some of the things he said. Uh, you know, Karl Marx is is blamed for Marxism. For some of the absolute atrocities because people followed what he wrote and they interpreted it and they made a mess of it. So, you know, it's 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 the way these lists work is that we're not picking people. You know, I don't think that the the famine in Russia in the th- in the nineteen thirties was a wonderful thing because of something that was followed by people who were reading Karl Marx. What what I think is that what Karl Marx thought about certain things or said, I kind of agree with, and I think he had a point. I think that's a good way to wrap up. So thanks, guys, for that. That was that was really good and long chat. Um, obviously, the edited version will be a hell of a lot shorter. So if if you want to be in touch with us, you can get us on caniinterjectpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Slowly and slowly, the reviews of the board games are going up. And, you know, click the like, click the download, click the whatever you need to click on to make sure that you're listening to our stuff. And thanks for now. And we'll catch you guys next time. And thanks for listening. 